Section 25 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 7, Part 3. The arrival of Mr. Powell at Saint-Germain in January 1696, charged with urgent letters and messages from a strong party of the open adherents and secret correspondence of King James in London, entreating him to make a descent in England without delay, rekindled a fever of hope in the hearts of the exiled king and queen. The representations made to them of the unpopularity of William, the miseries caused by excessive taxation, a debased currency, and the decay of commerce and trade, induced them to believe that the people were eager to welcome their old master, not only as their legitimate sovereign, but as their deliverer from the miseries of a foreign yoke. Louis the Fourteenth entered into measures for assisting James in this new enterprise with apparent hardiness. Berwick, whose military talents and chivalric character had won for him in France the surname of the British Dunois, was to take command of the Jacobite insurgents. Twelve thousand men, whom they had required to assist them, were already on their march to Calais, and all things promised fair. On the 28th of February, James bade adieu to his wife and children, in the confident belief that their next meeting would be at Whitehall. James had been assured by his friends in England that if he would adventure a descent, he would regain his crown without a contest. Unfortunately, Powell, the secret agent, who brought this earnest invitation to his old master, had not explained the intentions of the Jacobite Association with sufficient perspicuity. In the first conversation he had with His Majesty in the presence of the Queen, he was so eager for something to be attempted, and talked with so much ardor, that both James and Mary Beatrice imagined that the rising would take place directly it was known that the King was ready to embark. But in reality, they expected for him to land first with the 12,000 men, which was to be the signal for a general revolt from William. The mistake was fatal to the project. Louis was willing to lead his troops and transports to assist in an insurrection, but his ministers persuaded him that it would be useless to risk them on the chance of exciting one. The fleet and troops were in readiness at Calais when James arrived there, but were not permitted to stir from thence till certain news of a rising in England should be received. The design of Sir George Barclay and a party of desperate persons attached to the Jacobite party to precipitate matters by the wild project of a personal attack on King William in the midst of his guards, did the utmost mischief to James's cause, though he had always forbidden any attempt on the life of his rival, except in the battlefield. Meantime, the fleet of French transports that should have conveyed James and his auxiliaries to the shores of England were shattered by a violent storm, which wrecked many of them on their own coast. In short, in this, as in every other enterprise, for the purpose of replacing the exiled line of Stuart on the throne of Great Britain, winds, waves, and unforeseen contingencies appeared to be arrayed in opposition, as if an immutable decree of heaven forbade it. James retired to Boulogne on the 23rd of March, with the intention of remaining there till something decisive should take place. The state of his faithful consort's mind, meantime, will be best explained in one of her confidential letters to her friend, Angelique Priolo, to whom, as usual, she applies for sympathy and spiritual consolation in her trouble. If you could imagine, my dear mother, she says, 
to what a degree i have been overpowered with grief and business since i quitted you your kind heart would have compassion on mine which is more broken and discouraged than it has ever been although for two or three days i appear to begin to recover a little more fortitude or rather to submit with less pain to the good pleasure of god who does all that he pleases in heaven and earth and whom no one can resist but if we had the power i do not believe that either you or i far less my good king would wish to do it no no my dear mother god is a master absolute and infinitely wise and all that he does is good let him then be praised for ever by you and by me at all times and in all places after lamenting that her heart does not sufficiently accord with the language of her pen in these sentiments and entreating her friends to pray for her that she may become more perfect in the pious duty of resignation she goes on to say the king is still at calais or perhaps now at boulogne as long as he remains there he must have some hope i will tell you more about it when i see you which will be saturday next if it please god her majesty concludes in these words offer many regards on my part to our dear mother to whom i cannot write for i have written all this morning to the king and i can do no more but the desire i had to write to you has made me make this effort this letter though with no other date than saint germain this tuesday was written before lady day as the queen asked her cloistered friends if she intends to communicate preparatory to that festival of their church so early after the departure of her unfortunate lord did mary beatrice begin to despond and with reason as to the success of the enterprise on which he had left saint germain the discovery of barclay's insane plot against william's life broke the measures that james's more rational adherents had concocted for a revolt connected with the landing of their old master provided he were backed by the promised aid of the twelve thousand auxiliaries from france all the business at the court of saint germain was directed by mary beatrice at this anxious period which involved constant correspondence and meetings between her and the french ministers early in april she had a long interview with louis the fourteenth at marly in the vain endeavor of prevailing upon him to allow his troops to accompany king james to england louis was inflexible on this point and she had the mortification of communicating the ill success of her negotiation to her husband calais was meantime bombarded by the english fleet under russell who stood so far committed by the confessions of some of the confederates in the late plot that he was compelled to perform the duty of the post he held without regard to the interests of his late master james was anxious still to linger on the coast but the french cabinet having destined the troops for service elsewhere louis signified his wish that his royal kinsman should return to saint germain mary beatrice once more sought by her personal influence with louis to avert measures so entirely ruinous to their cause but her solicitations were fruitless james returned to saint germain in a desponding state of mind with the mortifying conviction that no effectual assistance would even be derived from the selfish policy of the french cabinet the devoted love and soothing tenderness of his queen mitigated the pain he felt at the bitter disappointment of his hopes and he resigned himself with uncomplaining patience to the will of god the most poignant distress was felt by mary beatrice at the executions which took place in consequence of the denunciation of their unfortunate adherents in one of her letters to her shallow correspondent she says 
There have been three more men hanged in England, making eight in all, and two more are under sentence. Nothing can be sadder than the news we hear from that country, though we hear but little, and that very rarely. It was at this time that the crown of Poland courted the acceptance of James II, but he firmly declined it. Ambition, he said, had no place in his heart. He considered that the covenant which bound him to his subjects was indissoluble, and that he could not accept the allegiance of another nation without violating his duties to his own. England had rejected him, but she was still too dear to him to be resigned. He would hold himself till death, free to return to his own realm, if his people choose to unite in recalling him. Mary Beatrice applauded his decision, though urged by Louis the Fourteenth to persuade her lord to avail himself of so honorable a retreat from the hopeless contest for the recovery of his dominions. The appointment of the Duke of Perth to the important office of governor to the young prince, her son, then about eight years old, is thus announced by the royal mother to her friend, Madame Priolo. July 23rd. The king has named this morning, my lord Perth, governor of my son, and we are going to put him into his hands. This is a great matter achieved for me, and I hope that God will bless the choice we have made, after having prayed for more than a year, that God would inspire us to do it well. Tell this to our dear mother for me, for I have not time to write to her. Her prayers with yours and those of our dear sisters have had a great part in this election, which I believe will be agreeable to God, for he is a holy man, and of distinguished merit, as well as of high rank. I am content to have my son in his hands, not knowing anyone better, but I have placed him, above all, and in the first place, in the hands of God, who in his mercy will have care of him, and give us grace, to bring him up in his fear and in his love. In the same letter, Her Majesty says, We are all in good health here. We had yesterday a visit from the King of France, and the day before, from Madame de Maintenon. We go tomorrow to St. Cloud, for the ceremonial of the baptism of Mademoiselle de Chartres. Mary Beatrice was godmother to the infant. The ceremonial, which was very splendid, took place at St. Cloud, in the presence of King James and all the foreign ambassadors, as well as the princes and princesses of the blood. After they had promenaded for some time in the apartments, the king gave his hand to the Queen of England, and led her to the chapel, where they both held the little princess at the font. Although, in the general acceptation of the word, a great friendship might be said to subsist between Mary Beatrice and Madame de Maintenon, there were times when, like most persons who have been raised by fortune immeasurably above their natural level, the widow of Scarone took the opportunity of making the consort of James II feel how much more there is in the power of royalty than the name. The fallen queen complains, in one of her letters, of the want of sympathy exhibited by this lady, on a subject which seems to have given her great pain. You will be surprised, she says to her friend, Angelique Priolo, and perhaps troubled at what I am now going to tell you in regard to that which cost me so much to tell that person, to whom I opened my heart thereupon, she not having thought proper so much as to open her mouth about it the other day, though I was a good half hour alone with her. I declare to you that I am astonished at it, and humiliated. However, I do not believe that I am quite humble enough to speak to her about it a second time, whatever inconvenience I may suffer. There is no order come from Rome, as yet, regarding our poor. 
continues the unfortunate queen. On the contrary, the Pope has been very ill, and I believe he will die before they are given, so that yesterday we came to the resolution to sell some jewels to pay the pensions for the month of September, and it follows that we must do the same for every month, unless we get our assistance, and of that I see no appearance. I conjure you, my dear mother, not to afflict yourself at all this, for myself, I assure, I am more astonished than grieved. This observation refers to the slight the unfortunate queen had received from Madame de Maintenon, to whom her application had apparently been made in behalf of the suffering adherents of King James. And in respect to our poor, she continues, I never shall consider that I have done my duty till I have given all I have, for it will not be then till I can say, with truth, that nothing remains to me, and it is impossible for me to give more. Mary Beatrice was as good as her word. By degrees, she sacrificed every ornament she had in the world for the relief of the unfortunate British emigrants. The following interesting testimony is given of her conduct by an impartial witness, Madame de Brennan, in a letter to her friend Sophia, Electress of Hanover. The Queen of England, says this lady, is scarcely less than saintly, and in truth it is a happiness to see her as she is in the midst of her misfortunes. A lady of her court told me that she deprived herself of everything in order to support the poor English who had followed the king to Saint-Germain. She has been known to take out the diamond studs from her manchettes, or cuffs, and send them to be sold. And she says, when she does these charitable actions, that it is well for her to despoil herself of such things to assist others. Is it possible that the confederate princes cannot open their eyes to the real merit and innocence of these oppressed and calumniated majesties? Can they forget them when a general peace is made? I always speak to you, dear Electress, continues the correspondent of the generous princess, on whom the British Parliament had settled the succession of this realm. With the frankness due to our friendship, I tell you my thoughts as they arise from my heart, and it seems to me that your Serene Highness thinks like me. Sophia of Hanover was of a very different spirit from the daughters of James II. She always had the magnanimity to acknowledge his good qualities and those of his faithful consort, and lamented their misfortunes, though she accepted with gratitude the distinction offered to her and her descendants by a free people, but she scorned to avail herself of the base weapons of falsehood or treachery, or to derive her title from any other source than the choice of Protestant England. In a preceding section of the same letter, Madame Brinon speaks of James II, with whom she had recently been conversing. He suffers, she says, not only like a saint, but with the dignity of a king. The loss of his kingdoms, he believes, will be well exchanged for heaven, he reminded me often that one of the first things he did after his arrival in France was to go see Madame de Maubisson. The exhausted state of the French finances compelled Louis the Fourteenth, who was no longer able to maintain himself against the powerful Anglo-Germanic, Spanish, and Italian League, to entertain proposals for a general peace. The deliberations of the Congress, which met for that purpose at Ryswick in the year 1697, were painfully interesting to James and his queen, since the recognition of William's title of Great Britain was, of course, one of the leading articles. Louis, however, insisted on the payment of the dower settled by Parliament on James's queen as an indispensable condition of the treaty. 
Mary Beatrice had done nothing to forfeit this provision. Her conduct as wife, queen, and woman had been irreproachable. She had brought a portion of 400,000 crowns to her husband, whose private property had been seized by William. Her claims on the revenue of a queen consort rested on the threefold basis of national faith, national justice, and national custom. When it was objected that James was no longer the sovereign of England, the plenipotentiaries of France proposed to treat her claims in the same manner as if her royal husband were actually, as well as politically, defunct, and that she should receive the provision of a queen dowager of Great Britain. So completely was the spirit of the laws and customs regarding the inviolability of the rights of the queens of England in her favor, that we have the precedent of Edward the Fourth extorting from his prisoner, Margaret of Anjou, the widow of a prince, whose title he did not acknowledge, a solemn renunciation to her dower as Queen of England, before he could appropriate her settlement to his own use. No wonder, then, that the claims of Mary of Modena infinitely perplexed her gracious nephew's cabinet, who met this question, in the following pettifogging mode of discussion, from the pen of one of their understrappers, Sir Joseph Williamson, whose style is worthy of his era. And as to the late King James's queen's jointure, which the French stick hard upon to be made good, it is a point of that delicacy that we are not willing hitherto to entertain it as any matter of our present business. If she have by law a right, she be to enjoy it. If not, we are not here empowered to stipulate anything for her. And so we endeavor to stave it off from being received as any part of what we are here to negotiate. However, it seems to be of use, if Mr. Secretary can do it, without noise or observation, to get an account of all that matter, how it now stands, and what settlements were made by the marriage articles, if any. What of any kind have been made on her, and how far, according as the law now stands, those that have been made will take. These inquiries were not to be made for the purposes of justice, towards the rightful owner of the said jointure, but in order that a flaw might be picked in the settlement, as this righteous Daniel subjoins. A private knowledge of this, if we can get it in time, might be of good help to us, to stave off the point, which, as we think, cannot so much as be openly treated on by any of us, without inconveniences that will follow. Memorial Concerning the Appanage of the Queen of Great Britain October 1696. According to the most ancient laws and customs of England, which are still in force, queens have their full right and power in their own persons, their estates and revenues, independently of the kings their husbands, by virtue of which they have always had officers of their revenues, who depended entirely on them, and all their acts have been valid, without the concurrence of the kings their husbands. As the Queen of England, that is Mary Beatrice of Modena, brought a very considerable sum as her portion at her marriage, the king her husband, on his accession to the crown, thought it was reasonable for him to make an establishment of fifty thousand pounds sterling of annual revenue on her, which was passed under the great seal of England, and afterwards confirmed by acts of parliament, which have not been repealed to this day, insomuch that the queen has an incontestable right to all the arrears of this revenue, which are due since she left England, as well as to those which shall be due hereafter. Her majesty only asks this, simply and purely, as a private debt, which is incontestably due to herself, 
and of which she only sets forth a statement lest it should be unknown to those who have the power and the will to do her justice the courtesy and gentleness of the last clause of the poor queen's plea deserve to be met with more candor and justice than are perceptible in the official williamson's dispatches before quoted while this matter was in debate louis the fourteenth treated james and mary beatrice with the most scrupulous personal attention william required that they should be deprived of their shelter at st germain and indeed driven from france altogether but to this louis would not consent he invited them to assist at the nuptials of his grandson the duke of burgundy with adelaide of savoy which were solemnized at fontainebleau september the seventh the bride was nearly related to mary beatrice on the father's side and her mother being the daughter of henrietta duchess of orleans was a niece of james the second whose connection with the royal family of france was consequently much strengthened by this alliance the exiled king and queen were given the place of honor as the most distinguished of the guests at this marriage and mary beatrice was seated between louis the fourteenth and her husband at the nuptial banquet when supper was over the two kings withdrew followed by all the gentlemen and the queen honored the bride by assisting at her coucher and presenting her robe de nuit james attended in like manner on the bridegroom whom he led into the bridal chamber the queen who had retired with her ladies while his royal highness got into bed re-entered and bade him and the bride good night according to the ceremonious etiquette of the court of france it was observed that madame de maintenon only appeared twice and then stayed scarcely half an hour for on this occasion of high and stately ceremony her doubtful rank was not recognized and she was forced to sit behind the seat of the queen of england who was the leading lady at the court of france the queen again visited louis the fourteenth at the trianon with all her court as he gave a grand festival there on the seventeenth of september and again was maintenon forced to retreat into her original insignificance unfortunately the courier who brought the news that the peace of ryswick whereby louis the fourteenth recognized william of orange as king of great britain was signed arrived at fontainebleau at the same time as the exiled king and queen louis the fourteenth had with peculiar delicacy told his minister torcy that whatever expresses arrived or however urgent the news might be the peace was not to be mentioned if he were in company with the king or queen of england and he would not suffer the least sign of rejoicing to take place or the musicians of his palace to play or sing any songs in celebration of the peace till their majesties and their whole court had returned to st germain the affectionate sympathy and kindness of louis did much to soothe the pain his political conduct had caused to his unhappy guests they were too just to impute that to him as a fault which was the result of dire necessity and they had the magnanimity to acknowledge his benefits instead of reflecting on him for the present extinction of their hopes we are in the bottom of our hearts satisfied with your great king writes mary beatrice to her friend madame priolo he was beside himself to see us arrive at fontainebleau at the same time with the courier who brought the news of the peace and he testifies much friendship pity and even sorrow for us he had no power to act otherwise in this matter in other things there is no alteration our residence at st germain appears fixed from what he has told us i say that it appears for in truth after all that we see how can we believe that anything is sure in this world i have the promise of the king that is louis 
that I shall be given my dower, and I have entreated him to be pleased to take upon himself the payments for me. In other words, for him to become the medium through which the money was to be transmitted by William and received by the consort of James. For, pursues she, her lofty spirit rising above the exigencies of her circumstances, I will demand nothing, nor receive aught from any other than from him, to whom I will owe entirely and solely the obligation. Louis having insisted on the article of the treaty, which secured it to her as a sine qua non, William signed it without the slightest intention of ever fulfilling the obligation. The consort of his uncle might have spared herself the trouble of arranging any punctilios of ceremony as to the how, when, and where she was to receive her income from William. He scrupled not to deceive the British nation, at the same time that he defrauded his aunt, by charging the annual sum of fifty thousand pounds to that account, and applying it to his own purposes. Mary Beatrice, after thus unburdening her mind of the subject that was uppermost in her thoughts, experienced a sudden misgiving that she was acting with some degree of rashness, for she says, I have been drawn on, without intending it, to enter into this matter, and not knowing what I may have said, I entreat you to burn my letter. Is it not sufficient comment on the imprudence of which this princess was habitually guilty, in writing long confidential letters on the most important subjects of her own and her unfortunate consort's private affairs, and afterwards those of her son, to her spiritual friends at Chalot, to say that her request was not complied with? And this and many other specimens of her autograph correspondence with these ladies is in existence to this day. Her letters afford sufficient evidence that the consort of Midas was not the only queen in the world who felt an irresistible necessity to whisper her lord's secrets in a quarter where she flattered herself that they would be kept from the world. The Holy Sister had as little appearance of being a dangerous confidant as the marsh ditch in that memorable tale, but without accusing her of bad intentions, it was more than probable that she was no more fit to be trusted with a secret than her royal friend. She went not abroad to reveal that rash confidence, it is true, but it is equally certain that the convent of Chalot was the resort of busy and intriguing ecclesiastics. William and his ambassador, the Earl of Manchester, had several priests in their pay, and that such men would succeed in obtaining a sight of the exiled Queen of England's correspondence with her beloved friends at Chalot. There can be little doubt, especially when letters, which ought never to have been written, were preserved, notwithstanding the royal writer's earnest request to the contrary. It is a fact, no less strange than true, that by one of the secret articles of the Peace of Ryswick, William the Third agreed to adopt the son of his uncle, James the Second and Mary Beatrice d'Este, as his successor to the British crown, provided James would acquiesce in that arrangement, and leave him in peaceful possession of the disputed realm for the term of his natural life. William was at that time laboring under a complication of mortal maladies, and it was expected by those about him that he would precede his unfortunate father-in-law to the tomb. One of his great eulogists, Dal Ripple, calls his proffered adoption of his disinherited cousin, an intended piece of generosity towards the exiled family. It is doubtful, from the thorough apathy of William's character, whether he were sufficiently under the influence of conscience, to intend the posthumous restitution of the crown to the legitimate heir as an act of tardy justice. 
there can be no doubt but that he would have been glad under any pretense to get the young prince into his own hands by which means he would have held him as a hostage against his own father and at the same time kept anne and her party in check as long as he lived leaving them to fight the matter out after his death the proposition contained in itself an acknowledgment of the falseness of the imputations william had attempted to throw on the birth of the son of james and mary beatrice and had they possessed the slightest portion of political wisdom they would have entered into a correspondence with william on the subject for the sake of exposing his duplicity to the people of england and the little respect he paid to the act of parliament which had settled the succession on the princess anne and her children when however the project was communicated to james mary beatrice who was present before he could speak exclaimed with the natural impetuosity of her sex and character i would rather see my son dear as he is to me dead at my feet than allow him to become a party to his royal father's injuries james said that he could bear the usurpation of the prince of orange and the loss of his crown with christian patience but not that his son should be instrumental to his wrongs and thus the matter ended james has been accused of pride and obstinacy in this business but as he has himself observed he had no security for the personal safety of his son and he had had too many proofs of the treachery of william's disposition to trust the prince in his keeping End of section 25